Are there any bits of the Bible that you feel uncomfortable reading? I think there are some pretty controversial claims in the Bible about judgment and the unique claims about Jesus and things like that. But I think on the whole, we're probably okay with reading those things out loud. Song of Solomon, though, Song of Songs, I think that's a whole other ball game. I asked Carolina to read chapter 3, as that's one of the tamer chapters uh, of Song of Solomon. Uh, but the book here um, is uh, dealing with things that we would be a bit embarrassed, I think, uh, some of them to read out loud. There are poetic descriptions of a woman's body, probably including euphemisms for things that would make me blush to mention. There are poetic descriptions of a man's body, too. There's talk of consummating love. There's breasts and bedrooms and spices and perfume and nudity and thrills. And the fact that we feel a little bit uncomfortable talking about these things shows us why we need Song of Songs. It's in a book that's there to remind us of the goodness, godliness even, of those things. So what we have here is not a naughty book. It's the opposite. It's there to show us that these things aren't naughty when they take place between a husband and a wife. And those are the two main characters in the book. Uh, first an engaged couple, and then married from chapter 3 onwards. There are also friends who sort of chime in from time to time. As you read through the book, you get these he's and she's and others, and they're not there in the originals, but they do definitely help make sense of what's going on. It gets very confusing if you don't have those headings going through. But some things that aren't so helpful are the, the headings in the ESV referring to Solomon. We've been going through a series looking at different books as we go through the Bible. In all the other books that we've looked at so far, I've been in agreement with the traditional author. So Moses for the first five books and so on. But here, although Solomon is traditionally known as the author, <coughs> I don't believe that Solomon is the author of this book. Or that if he was, he wasn't writing about himself. You see, the traditional view is that Solomon and his first wife, uh, the daughter of Pharaoh, are the subjects of this book. That Solomon is writing about his love for the daughter of Pharaoh. So there are some things that make that a little bit of a difficult reading as we go through. First of all, the woman in the poem is a country girl. She's supposed to be somebody who sort of knows the countryside very well. She's not a princess who's lived in a palace. The man in the poem is a shepherd. Now people say, well, it's figurative, sort of talking about a king, but seemingly he again is out in the fields. This seems to be literally his job. And when Solomon appears in the book, he mostly appears as a separate character that's spoken about, like in the chapter we had read before. So when she seems to refer to the fiancé as a king, it's more that actually she's saying about how she feels about what's happening. A bit like we might say, you know, oh, here's my Prince Charming. Uh, that sort of language. She's saying, oh look, here's my King Solomon, who's coming into the room. They're like a king and a queen in chapter 3, getting ready for their wedding day. And if you think about it, that still sort of fits today, doesn't it? Uh, think about weddings with the brides and grooms. You dress up poshly and smartly, probably about as poshly and smartly as you're ever going to dress. You know, like royalty. People give you gifts, basically having done not that much. <laughs> People make toasts about you and how great you are as long as you've got a good best man. You're the centre of attention, and it's about as close to royalty any of us will get, unless you bump into Mike Tyndale at Sainsbury's. 
But, as we have this here, it is there for a reason. It's there to help us uh, think about marriage. And again, and, and, and that side of things, again, that doesn't work really so well with Solomon, does it? If you're going to write a book in the Bible about a sort of ideal marriage, Solomon is not the guy that you go for, is he? He married 700 women, and in the end, his heart was led astray by them. That's not your guy you're going to pick to write your book about marriage, is it? Do you write uh, 700 poems for his 700 wives? You know, this is one for one, telling each one of them in chapter 6, verse 9, you're my dove, my perfect one, the only one. Well, that's not true for Solomon, is it? He's got 700 of them. So no, this is not Solomon. It may have been around the time of Solomon, but Solomon is not the lover in this poem. So when Solomon is mentioned, it's to make things superlative. It's to make things the most of something. So in chapter 1, verse 5, it says, like the curtains of Solomon. As though, you know, they have the best curtains. That would be a bit of a weird thing to say if Solomon was writing it. So it would be like, my curtains? Or my curtains of Solomon? So in verse 1, it tells us that we have a song of songs, a song of Solomon, even. It's saying it's the best song. It's the superlative song. It's the greatest song. About the greatest theme, as he goes through. But linking it with Solomon as well puts it into a certain section of the Bible. It puts it into the wisdom literature of the Bible. It's there with the Psalms and Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. And what we have here is not a history book. It's a poetry book. Uh, that's why we put it where it is in the Bible. So as we go through the book, there will be devices, there will be imagery that's used in poems and songs. It's going to be a great book. So this is the superlative song. But what does it have to teach us? Well, there are three big approaches to the book, and all of them, I think, have something to teach us about what the book is about and about our life with God. Number one, the book is a love poem. It's a love poem. First and foremost, before it is anything else, Song of Songs is a love poem. It's about the joys of romantic and physical love. It's a reminder that physical, romantic love is a wonderful, God-given gift to be enjoyed within the confines of marriage. It's partly there to remind us that physical love is not a thing to be ashamed of. It's not a taboo. Yes, we need to talk about it carefully, especially when we've got kids uh, in the room, like we have this evening. But it's telling us there, to put it bluntly, that sex is a good thing. Our bodies are good things. They're to be enjoyed by our husband or wife if we're married, or kept for God if we're not. And this book gives us a high view of these things. The fact that we're a bit embarrassed by them is probably more to do with the fact that we're British. It's our Britishness that sort of uh, makes us a bit awkward about this. I've lived on the continent, and they're far, far more comfortable talking about this sort of thing than we are. The other reason we find it hard is the remains of Greek influence on Western thought, which viewed the body and physical things as bad inherently. So the body was bad, spirit good. That was the Greek thinking. That's why things like perpetual virginity became a virtue in the West. But it's not there in the Bible. Actually, the Bible is very positive about these things. It's the Greek philosophers that were not. So physicality is not bad. The body is not bad. Physical love is not bad. Those things can be misused, but they are not inherently bad things. 
And that's an important message, isn't it? So much as Christians of what we've got to say on this topic is negative. But the Song of Songs gives us the positive. It gives us a good thing to say. If we're married, physical love should be thrilling, exciting, enjoyable. Our spouse's body is a gift to us. Perhaps don't do what uh, the author does and compare a forehead to a pomegranate. That's not the <laughs> Wouldn't recommend that. Or, you know, if a, a woman with a husband is legs to an alabaster column, that's not particularly the way to go. But it's saying with those things that it's okay to be physically attracted to your spouse. And it's okay to tell them that as well. So if you're married, husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. Wives, love your husbands. It's not simple, it's not naughty, it's a good thing. If you're not married, don't worry, because actually, second point, it's also a picture of Christ and the church. Whilst the church historically hasn't majored on the first point, it really has majored on this second one. That this is a picture of God and his people, of Christ and his church. Now I want to say this evening that is true, but only because the first point is true. We're not to sort of make it that it's not the first point and it's only the second point. The two are true together. Sometimes in history the first point has essentially been denied. And a purely spiritual meaning has been given without any reference to what it actually seems to say. It does have a spiritual meaning, but only because marriage itself is a picture, isn't it? Of God and his people, Old Testament. In Hosea, God pictures his covenant with his people, like marriage. And in the New Testament, Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom. And the church is pictured as the bride, beautifully adorned for our husband. So those things are true, but we can't ignore the first point. It really is a love poem about good, godly, human, physical love. But that in itself is a picture of Christ's union with the church. Paul goes as far to say uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, he quotes Genesis. And he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage, even the consummation of marriage, points towards Christ's union with his church. We await the consummation, so to speak, when Jesus returns, and we shall enjoy wedding bliss, uh, wedding bliss for eternity. Our earthly marriages will end, but we will enjoy the earthly, the, sorry, enjoy the eternal pleasures with Christ forevermore. And that means that even if we're not married, or there comes a stage in our life where we're not married, this book has something to say, say to us. The thrill and excitement that the lover and the beloved feel here pales in comparison when compared to the thrill and excitement that we shall enjoy for eternity. Earthly marriage, as lovely as it is, is nothing compared with the marriage that is to come when Christ returns. When we as the bride run to our lover's arms and are beloved into the eons. Now that's not a sexual thing, but it is an intimacy thing. It's a love thing. It's not like we're going to fancy Jesus, but it's that we will know and be known. That's what it's talking about, that intimacy. It's something bigger, deeper than the unions that we enjoy on earth. And that means it's okay if we miss out a bit in this life. 
either because we're not married, or if our marriage is not as physically or emotionally fulfilling as we hoped, we have a better marriage coming. And this book points us to that. So we should see this as a picture of Christ, but we shouldn't do so to the exclusion of the original meaning and intent. That also frees us from trying to make everything allegorical in the book. As though each detail must have some deeper spiritual meaning. I was listening to a talk this week uh, that said that 1 verse 13 had an interesting history in that regard. The Jews saw it as allegorical and thought of it as the glory of God between the cherubim. The Christians in the Victorian times thought it was Christ between the Old and New Testament. But if you read that verse, you find out it's talking about something very different. But the book doesn't work that way. It's not an allegory, but it is a broad picture of the deeper reality. And then finally, this book is also a search for shalom. A search for shalom. Another interesting angle in the book is to view it as a poem that was already about something a little bit more than it seems to start with, before we come to it with Christ and the church. The reason this view has become more popular is partly due to the lack of identity for the man and the woman. The woman is twice referred to as a Shulamite in chapter 6, which sounds great. Yeah, she's from Shulam, except for nobody knows where Shulam is, or there's no person called Shulam that she could be descended from. We don't even know if it's a place or a person. But what it is, is very similar linguistically to the name Solomon. Both names mean peace, shalom. And it seems that that is where the book gets to at the very end. So chapter 8, verses 8 to 10, it says this. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. Then I was, in his eyes, as one who finds peace. This is sort of the conclusion of the book. It's right to the end. Then there's just a sort of last bit between the, the, bride, uh, the, the woman and the man. But here they've found peace. That word shalom again. Everything right, everything as it should be. Wholeness. It's like the ultimate happy ending. And it's a happy ending here that even impacts others. Here is this woman now rejoicing in her womanhood, who brings contentment and pleasure to her husband and he to her. A picture of shalom, the world put right. But we must remember that this is poetry. It's not saying that sex and marriage always bring contentment. It's not saying that you must be complete, in order to be complete, that you must be married. What it's giving us is an idealised picture. And taken with the other two points, it's a wonderful picture of the shalom that's to come. And did you notice in those final verses, it's your shalom that overflows to others. The little sister mentioned in the verses before will find shalom. They're starting to spread this out to the people around them. It's saying that this is something that is spreading, that is going round. There will be a time when all will be right with the world, when we will find true shalom, true peace. But until then, we can experience what my old pastor called penultimate shalom, penultimate shalom, a peace before that great peace. And we can experience that in many ways, 
as Christ helps us to be content with our circumstances, as we grow in intimacy with his people in church. And yes, sorry Solomon would say, some of us through marriage and physical love. We get to experience a taster of the shalom to come. But all God's people will experience that ultimate shalom on the day when Jesus returns. That is what the book is really about. Those three points. I hope that hasn't made you feel too uncomfortable as we've gone through those things. But let's pray that God would help us see and find those things. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good gifts that you've given us. Father, thank you for the gift of physical intimacy, Father, of marriage, of relationship. But Father, thank you more, uh, even more for Christ. Father, thank you that one day we will be his bride, Father. One day uh, we will enjoy wedding bliss for eternity. We will finally find uh, that peace. We will finally find that shalom. Father, help us uh, to know how best to uh, prepare, Father, how to uh, live in the light of what is to come. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.